0: You know, I always say pharmacists are harm reductionists because we want people to have the fewest adverse or side effects. And you know, again, sometimes we can't control that, but we can make people aware of it, what they can do about it. And we want people to continue to have the benefits of their medications. So we need to say, taking this medication reduces the additional harms, right? You will have a lower chance of a stroke or a heart attack if you take your ACE inhibitor, right?
1: Welcome to the Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show, where quality measurement leads to better patient outcomes. This show will be your go-to source for all things related to quality improvement and medication use in healthcare. We will hit on trending health topics as they relate to performance measurements and find common ground for payers and practitioners. We will discuss how the Equip platform can help you with your performance goals. and We will also make sure to keep you up to date on pharmacy quality news. Please note that the topics discussed are based on the information available at the date and time of recording. Information or guidelines are updated periodically, and we will always recommend that our listeners research and review any guidelines that are newly published. Buckle up and put your thinking cap on. The Quality Corner Show starts now.
2: Hello, Quality Corner Show listeners. Welcome to the PQS podcast, where we focus on medication use, quality improvement, and how we can utilize pharmacists to improve patient health outcomes. I'm your host, Nick Dorich, and on the episode today, our discussion will focus on how we communicate with patients. The message, the substance of of the message is important for improving patient care. But if the messenger cannot effectively communicate or connect with the patient, there is little chance that the patient will understand, comprehend, or perhaps even respect that message. Working with a patient in healthcare is a two-way street, and we as providers can never forget that. Many approaches to communication and patient counseling focus on adopting patient or people-first language. A disease, side effects, exacerbations are all various manifestations, but they do not define the person that is standing in front of you at the pharmacy counter or in your counseling room. With that as our introduction, let's go ahead and meet our guest for today's episode. That guest today is Dr. Jeff Bratberg, and he is a clinical professor at the University of Rhode Island College of Pharmacy. Jeff. Welcome to the PQS Quality Corner Show, and how are you doing today? I'm
0: doing great, thanks for asking. Uh, It's an honor to be on here, thanks for inviting me.
2: Excellent, well Jeff, before we begin today's episode, let's get to know about you. What's your career or background in healthcare, and then what do you do today?
0: Uh, Well, today is a a lot like what I did 20 years ago. uh, I've spent 20 years as a professor teaching at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, My one job uh, before that, I did postgraduate residencies in infectious disease and critical care in Detroit and uh, my PGY1 uh, at Freighter Hospital in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am a a proud bison. I went to North Dakota State University, so I just kept moving east from Fargo to Milwaukee to Detroit
2: to, to Rhode Island. Excellent. Well, thanks for the introduction. We're going to get into some specifics on what you do. Your your focus is uh, in infectious disease and what you teach at the University of Rhode Island. But I know that you do a whole lot else in the healthcare pharmacy world, especially as it relates to um, public policy and public health. And that's why you're going to be a great guest for us to have today when we talk about how we communicate patients, the importance and how that plays into harm reduction. And ultimately, all of these communication aspects, they may not themselves be tied into quality measures but they are a part of quality improvement. So just to set the scene for our audience, right? If we're communicating, working with patients, we need to make sure that the patients know we're on their side, that we're also listening to them. So that becomes very important because ultimately if we're not able to have that kind of great exchange, it's gonna be very difficult to work with the patient and improve their healthcare, improve their quality of life. So we're gonna cover all that information, but before we do, uh, we're gonna hit the breakdown.
1: Now it's time for the breakdown. As Quality Corner show host, Nick will ask three main topic questions. Our guests will have a chance to respond and there will be some discussion to summarize the key points. This process will repeat for the second and third questions, which will wrap up the primary content for this recording. After that, expect to end on a closing summary, usually containing a bonus question. Now that we have described the process, let's jump into the questions.
2: Jeff, the first question today is going to be very straightforward. How do we define people-centered communications in healthcare, and what are some examples that you can share?
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, That's a great question. So we all know that no intervention happens if the person doesn't do it. And so as as a lot of my colleagues have said, uh, pharmacists aren't just scientists. They aren't just researchers or teachers or who provide service or volunteer. We're really communicators in all of those settings. And, and when we're providing direct patient care or direct uh, care to our colleagues in healthcare, I think it's really important to say, we need to figure out what the patient wants. And I think the most uh, evidence is behind motivational interviewing, just simply asking the patient where they're at. We're one of the most trusted professionals uh, because uh, not only do we have that sort of visibility and connection to patients, but we're able to make that connection through that communication, establishing rapport, You know all the steps of motivational interviewing. Um, And that's why it's such a big part of our curriculum and other curriculum, but also just what we do in practice with all people. I'm glad you said people-centered care. Instead of thinking them as a patient, that alone is a word that defines them as somebody who's got a problem or who has an acute problem or a chronic problem. It's better to say, what does this person want? You know, I work in public health. My practice site is our one state department of public health and we do public policy. And whether it's policy on the macro level or people on the sort of micro or individual level, again, what do you want? And let's give you the tools to achieve what you want. And when you've achieved that level, what's the next stage? So it's not, you know, these guidelines say you must reach this threshold of this lab value. Well, that's great. And we know that there's better outcomes when we achieve that. But if the person's unwilling to take the med at all, or they have a side effect, or like I teach my students, it's really important to know if a med causes headache or nausea, which is sort of like the most common side effects. But if you don't tell people that, if you don't tell people, look, don't tell people this vaccine is going to be, have no side effects when it causes pain in the arm for two, two days, tell them it's going to cause pain because otherwise you may, they may not get vaccinated or tell their friend, you know, yeah, it's going to be, you know, there, there might be pain there. Tell people what headache and nausea and what they can do about it and check in with them, right? I think part of patient communication isn't that initial visit. We need to think long, longer term since we are, uh, we do have the most frequent touch points of any professional, especially in community pharmacy or ambulatory care pharmacy to say, I'm going to see you in a month or we have telepharmacy, which is everything from just a quick call or email or a text message. Let's use this technology. We've used it more during the pandemic, um, and, and and really uh, use the same principles in all of those technological um, interventions to to make sure that people achieve the goals that they want.
2: Excellent. So Jeff, before we go on to our next question, actually, going to throw throw something back to you. You talked about motivational interviewing. Can you explain a little bit about what that is, what that process is like? Well, I think a sum. I mean, it, it's a very. It, it's more involved than
0: than I can summarize here, probably, but uh or it is more involved than i what i will summarize and the summary really is meeting the patient where they're at and again in my field of of studying uh opioid use and substance use and how to get people to reduce their use of substances or to use them safely we call that harm reduction that's the ultimate people-centered kind of thing you know i always say pharmacists are harm reductionists because we want people to have the fewest adverse or side effects and you know Again, sometimes we can't control that, but we can make people aware of it, what they can do about it. And we want people to continue to have the benefits of their medications. So we need to say, taking this medication reduces the additional harms, right? You will have a lower chance of a stroke or a heart attack if you take your ACE inhibitor, right? I mean, this is what you do with with quality, right? Those are the measures, really, is what is what are those expensive patient-harming, community-harming outcomes that we want to reduce? And it really starts with taking this, you know, in a health belief model. If you take this, you get a benefit. If you don't take it, you may have a negative and people are motivated different ways. And in the actual interviewing case, it's really establishing rapport. How are you doing today? You know, you asked me that. It's called a relational pause. I use that in class. I don't want to say, all right, class, open your books, right? People are like, what is going on here? I want to say, how are you guys doing? You know, and I found that that's really a way to sort of take that time, connect with it. So that that sort of 20-second pause that's a sincere, how are you doing, establishes the rapport. I'm gonna I think that you should take your medicine this way. What do you think about that? Give people the control, right? Too often medicine is paternalistic. I tell you what to do. They probably came from a provider who said, You've had this problem, here are four meds, go get them filled. And if they come to the pharmacy, and only about 70% actually go to the pharmacy and they're in front of you and they've waited an hour and they've just been told this news and they haven't processed it, you can help them through motivational interviewing start to process that disease state, start to process what it's like to now change their whole lifestyle, whether it's one pill or four pills um, or injections or what have you, and make sure that you have that connection so they come back and get it filled the next month. Again, quality isn't that initial chronic medication fill. It's
2: all of those fills. Jeff, thanks for the response on that item. And it becomes really important, right? As you mentioned here, quality is a continuous process and it's important that we don't just counsel the patient once on the medication or what they're going to expect because their situation, medications they're taking, there may be changes to their finances, there may be changes to other disease states and other priorities that they have. So as you had said, that uh, relationship pause, I think it was, right? Um, Becomes very, very important. Something that we always need to consider with the patient. What is their priority? Why are they taking the medication? Why are they trying to treat or manage this disease? Um, And it all comes down to necessarily from a patient perspective. It's not necessarily managing that disease. It's about living their life and where that fits in is the important aspect here that we're really trying to focus on. Now, I will move us to our next topic on this conversation. And for our listeners, I'll give you a little bit of the the background uh, as to how Jeff and I ended up with this conversation today. Now, Jeff and I have known each other for years. There was a point where I knew him exclusively as Dr. Bratberg because (laughs) I was a student at URI and I had my infectious disease course from from Jeff. Um, But we had a great chance to catch up at the APHA meeting and we were talking about the importance of um, people-centered language. So from my own experience, this has at times seemed like a web of seemingly constant updates for what terms we use for medications, specific treatments, action plans, and then particularly this has been important when it comes to uh, items like substance use disorder. So can you provide us examples, some current examples where providers may be tripped up with language that is no longer current, no longer appropriate, and maybe help us identify what is some of the language that we should be using and what are those items that we should be really removing from our vocabulary?
0: Yeah, great. I think I think language is probably the most important and, and and sometimes even easiest way for students or other or pharmacists on interdisciplinary teams to really sort of bring, you know, to, to role model this behavior. I think one thing I say and I want your listeners to know is so if you if you if you're a person who already uses this language or if you hear somebody use the wrong language, we all know nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Right. So don't say don't ever say that. Right. Or. That patient isn't a diabetic, you know, just role model by with the positive behavior. So and I say diabetic because everybody uses that. Right. But the person's not defined by their disease. So it's a person with diabetes. And so I think that that's so there's sort of a meta communication there when you use these words. So, you know, I know lots of folks who use you mentioned substance use disorder. Right. So it, it medicalizes it. Some would argue it's a biopsychosocial disease, but it's 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 a disorder. It's something that can be fixed. You talked about medications for opioid use disorder or MOUD. Previously, it was called medication-assisted treatment. You see that still used in a lot of state laws. Um, we refrain from using medication-assisted treatment because it means it's assisting non-medication therapies when medication is the gold standard uh, foundational treatment that actually reduces mortality. And we have the data there. And uh, so it isn't that counseling is not important. It just doesn't have the outcomes, doesn't have the quality outcomes that we want. Uh, we've actually changed that to medications for addiction treatment. So MAT, so keeping the same initials. These are sort of the things, but um, like if you go to uh, the the phrase that the federal government uses called words matter. And I think that's it matters in front of the person so there'll, there'll be people who are in recovery who will say i'm an addict right and i guess what a lot of my folks say the people that i work with and other people in recovery say if they want to call themselves an addict that's okay as long as it's not emphasizing the stigma and also being discriminatory and making it allowable for healthcare professionals to use that term we need to use the term person with a substance use disorder uh, a person again we talked about the, the you know a, a drug abuser you know that implies that that they are the problem. And if you think of the person as the problem, actually there was a a paper that came out that said uh, they had a case where they used drug abuser and they had a case where they used substance use disorder and the people who in this this theory took care of the person who wasn't labeled a drug abuser actually provided them higher quality care. So it's not only important in verbalizing it, but also in how you write this in the chart, right? Uh, So any people who read charts or who work in inpatient settings it's so-and-so was an alcoholic. Okay. Are they defined by their alcohol use disorder? Can you on, you know, I would on critical care rounds, I would say the person in room three with an alcohol use disorder so that the trainees hear it, so that my trainees hear it. Role modeling instead of correcting, I think is is important. I think the other term that's a little more subtle is relapse. So again, uh, substance use disorders are relapsing, riveting uh, conditions. Uh, instead of relapse, which implies it was your problem, right? That's why language is important. It's saying a return to use. Uh, and I'll leave it with one more sort of hostile based one is against medical advice, which is that paternalism there, like patient left against medical advice. And probably people who hear that think of, oh yeah, the person who went to go seek drugs again. Well, if we didn't provide quality care for them and treat them in a patient-centered way and use the right terms, such as, uh, you know, then they're going to leave and we call that a patient-directed discharge, right? Which still can happen, but you see, it's just even those words are so implicit in saying, let's see what the patient
2: wants. Let's find out what they want and meet them where they're at. Excellent. Thanks for the rundown, Jeff. And and I bring this up. I, I took this topic or started this question with what's current. Right. And we we've pointed this out in numerous episodes that for folks that listen to our episode here and now. To the best of our ability, myself and Jeff, we are using language that is appropriate um, and patient that is that and language that is that people-centered language and what is appropriate terminology. But I think, Jeff, I'll speak on both of our behalf here for a moment. We both also are willing to recognize and learn that this terminology, these terminologies that they may change going forward and that we need to be um, cognizant of what those are. Um, I think here I'll look to summarize just some of your points. It's important for us as providers to role model the appropriate language. We don't want to correct our peers. We don't want to tell our peers, our colleagues that they're wrong, because that creates its own negativity and may push people kind of further away from that. And then, you know, for patients as well, if they're identifying or if it's it's an item that are important, not to correct them either, right? If they identify if that they state that that's their prerogative to do so. It really comes down to what's the respectful way to treat the person again, I'll say that what's the respectful way to treat the person, not necessarily the patient. Um, They may be seeing you in the case of, yes, they are a patient, but they're a person first. That's the most important thing. And ultimately, it's like the great Depeche Mode song, people are people here, we should all just get along is really the key um, to this. So um, I'm excited uh, to go into our next part of this topic or question, Jeff, and I know you've been working in this space and I know you've been communicating with providers, other healthcare groups, um, even public policy organizations. So for our healthcare providers, including pharmacists, where are there specific organizations or communities that have helped to support or provide resources so that practitioners can constantly be updated on appropriate terminology and how to appropriately connect with this people first language?
0: Yeah. So it's great. So, I mean, the national, I mean, and, and they are changing the name actually this is sort of hot off the press the national institute on drug abuse uh is going to be is going to be changing uh their name as well as the substance use and addiction and mental health uh, services administration or samsa uh substance abuse right is that it's the second a that's also going to be changed um substance use and addiction and mental health services i think it's what it's going to be um so so nida uh, which is nida and samsa H uh, S A. I'm actually on the executive board the secretary of an interdisciplinary education group called Amersa and just we'll just just am dot a.org go to amersa.org our our annual meetings in november sign up registration opens next month in june so i have to promote it but we actually i'm on the abstract um, for the for our meeting assessment committee and we ask people to use person centered language and and say you will not have your Your abstract accepted if you use incorrect language, or you'll get points off. We actually talk to all of our speakers and say, "Are you approaching this with the right language?" And we educate. Again, we don't penalize people. You know, we don't want to be punitive here. Those that doesn't work either. So we take a sort of a a very meta role in both promoting it on our website, promoting it in our members, accepting these things because we have a lot of trainees who submit work to our annual meeting. So, Amrsa. NIDA, SAMHSA, and then again, you can just Google Words Matter. I think the most interesting thing is the Associated Press. So anyone who's listening has seen the media not have such a good way in how they portray uh, substance use disorder. And so a group of of journalists who work in this space created a website called Changing the Narrative. It's from the Health and Justice Action Lab. And Leo Valetsky is a a lawyer and professor who, who leads this too. It's at Northeastern University School of Law. And it gives... This really wonderful. So if you, if you Google changing the narrative dot news, uh, that's where it will do it. And so we, you know, on social media actively say, I can't believe that you use this when the AP guidelines say don't use these terms, go to changing the narrative so that you can literally do that. Change the narrative, make this positive, see people as people and see the the, the proximal causes of what drug use is. And then let's try to seek solutions for those.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, I know. And. In- preparation for this episode, but also just my own familiarity. I know that there's been numerous takes with some of the pharmacy specific organizations on using people first language that I know, uh, Jeff, you and I have sat together the last couple of years in the APHA House of Delegates, that's been a topic there. We're seeing many of the pharmacy organizations adopting this. So um, please, if you are any kind of healthcare provider, any kind of health practitioner, someone who works adjacent to or in parallel, um, this is an item where it is important. We are talking about patient care and how we are treating people, right? Again, that's the key part. Um, We are treating people. We're going to treat people like people and do that most importantly. All right, Jeff. Well, that covers our conversation or topic for today. And like we said at the beginning of this episode, you and I probably could talk about this uh, the entire afternoon, all day. Uh, You and I are both folks that like to do a lot of talking. And there's a lot to say about this, but we're going to keep it short for our listeners. Um, And I just want to hit some of the key points as it goes to our conversation. When it comes to addressing and working with the people that we are seeing in our care, in our clinics, it's important to be using people first language. Um, This really comes as a big part to working with The person working with the patient um, in a manner that's respectful and is really aligning with what are their goals, not just for treatment and not just for their health, but really overall for the entirety of their quality of life. This is really where it becomes the key item. Um, We did talk through on what are some appropriate words, appropriate communications, and and I'm not going to go through all of those items again and some of the current examples that Jeff gave, um, but you can check out immersa.org and some of the other resources that were shared um, as ways to uh, how you can utilize people first language, person first language, and how you can look to remove some of that other language that you may use in your practice. And as it goes, it's important for all of us to be advocates for this approach. So when you're working with your colleagues, when you're working with your peers, we don't want to be correcting our our peers. We don't want to be telling them that they're wrong. We want to really just be working as role models in the use of this language. Uh, And that really is the most positive approach uh, when it comes to utilizing this language and taking that person, that people-centered approach. But Jeff, we're gonna, before we let you go, we've got a few more questions and a few other items. At the PQS show here, we always are focused on quality improvement. That comes in a lot of ways, shapes, or forms. And I wanna pivot us to you and what you're doing as it goes to your personal and or professional improvement. So I've got three parts to this question and we'll let you have at it. So one, how do you track your personal or professional goals? Two can you share a goal you're currently working on? And three, is there a goal you haven't yet started, but that you would like to start this year?
0: Yeah, those are, those are all uh, great questions. Um, I would say i probably poorly tracked them. Um, I think I'm just trying to put out fires and trying to start things and end things. I think someone said it best is that to sort of bucket, the things you're working on is sort of, okay, what do you need to plan for? What do you need to work on? And what do you need to finish? And so my, I, I'm really, I guess my, my per, both in personal and professional goals is making little progress in all those things. So I have eight papers I need to write, but they're in various stages of development. And sort of, if I work on something a little bit each day, this is probably my one goal I'm, I'm working on to say, if I work on something to plan, I work on something to to work on, and work on something to finish. It isn't. I used to focus on things just to finish, to say, okay, I got to finish something, and then I got to start something. But if you sort of add that middle goal, I think I found that, okay, I made a little progress and I finished something and I started something is that instead of this unbelievable list of things to do, I'm kind of chipping away at all of those things. So the goal I haven't started yet, but I'd like to start in the next year, I guess uh, I'm planning a a sabbatical and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And in that, if I get awarded it.
2: Well, best wishes on the progress uh, towards the sabbatical and, uh um, and all the work that you're able to do there jeff um jeff we do have one final question before we let you go today and there are folks that may be interested in hearing more from you and finding out about finding out about your work whether it's in harm reduction maybe infectious disease which we know that's your specialty and we didn't even touch on that today it may be related more to your work with immersa but if folks do want to reach out to you where can they find you how can they contact you uh well it's pretty
0: easy i have a pretty unusual name in the, in the united states uh so you can probably google uh, just Jeff Bratberg. I, I'm Jeff with one F, which is back when I was in college on on KDSU 91.9 FM, my, my radio DJ gig, um, which has come full circle now and that I, I host a podcast as part of my public health rotation called The Regimen. So if you find The Regimen on, on anywhere you can find podcasts, uh, you can see what all my students do. And uh, yeah, we have a weekly show. And so uh, we'll be probably focusing on substance use disorder and harm reduction coming up. Uh, and infectious diseases in the next uh, over the summer. So catch out our new epi- catch up on our new episodes and and
2: all the episodes we've done already. Excellent. Well, I certainly recommend folks to check out uh, Jeff and his work with the Regiment. Uh, I know there's also a Twitter account that I have seen. That was actually how I found out about that particular podcast. And that was another area where Jeff and I shared some talking points and what we do with our various work and podcasts and how we're promoting pharmacists as public health allies, public health advocates, and everything that pharmacists can do uh, because we, Jeff, again, I'm going to speak for both of us. We both know that pharmacists are underutilized in a lot of ways in the healthcare field. There's a lot more that pharmacists can do, and it's something that we're both very passionate about. So uh, recommend, again, check out The Regimen, um, find that where you find any of your podcasts, uh, give them a follow on Twitter as well, and connect with Jeff. Um, Now, with that, we have wrapped up our content for today's episode, and we thank you, the audience, for joining us today, and we hope you listen to our next episode of the Quality Corner Show. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. Until then, we have one final message from the PQS team.
1: The Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show has a request for you. Our goal is to spread the word about how quality measurement can help improve health outcomes, and we need your help in sharing this podcast to friends and colleagues in the healthcare industry. We also want you to provide feedback, ask us questions and suggest health topics you'd like to see covered. If you are a health expert and you want to contribute to the show or even talk on the show, please contact us. You can email info at pharmacyquality.com. Let us know what is on your mind, what we can address so that you are fully informed. We want you to be able to provide the
0: best care for your patients and members And we wish all of you listeners out there well.